Open our Bible, Zechariah chapter 13 this morning. We're taking a break, which we often do between books, to uh, stay current with current events. This message is called Israel Under Attack. I want to tell you straight out that I've taken the title from Dave Hawking's newsletter and several of his cross-references. So I want to give credit where credit is due there. This week unfolded in such a dramatic way that is truly what the Bible refers to as birth pains. Jesus talked about his second coming would be likened to a woman who was in labor. The closer the kingdom that we've been praying for for so long, the closer we got to it, there would be world events that we call birth pains that would draw our attention to the fact that we're living in a time where the Lord is going to allow um, his promises to Israel to be fulfilled. He still owes Israel seven years, according to Daniel chapter 9. That has not been fulfilled. Um, all of the book of Revelation, beginning with chapter 6, is yet future. And what we're going to read this morning in Zechariah 1 through 9 is also yet future. But the point of this morning's message is the stage is clearly being set for those who have eyes to see. And again, what you're going to hear this morning is going to be so politically uncorrect, I can't even begin to tell you. But on the other hand, I'm going to tell you that it's going to be extremely biblically correct and accurate. So with that, what we're about to read is yet future, the first nine verses. And then we're going to go to Psalm 83, and I'll also comment on that. Zechariah 13, where Pastor Lane was reading for us earlier. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness. Your Bible might say a cup of trembling. To all the surrounding peoples, when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem, It'll happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all people. And all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all of the nations of the earth are gathered against it. And then he talks about the war from verses 4 through 7. And um, picking up verse 8, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the one who was... Feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angels of the Lord before him. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, if you turn to Psalm 83, what I'm about to read here, I want to preface in that there are very good people that I respect as Bible theologians and prophecy teachers who do not see Psalm 83 as happening right now with the events in Israel. Um, Mark Hitchcock, conference speaker often with Calvary, Dr. Tommy Ice, who's been here many times, do not see this as um, what's happening right now. I can't go that far, and I'll tell you why. It's because of the events of this week and a game changer that's called ISIS, and I'll talk about ISIS this morning. And um, I think the game changer where there's a possibility that this could be a prophecy. 
But I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that it is. But this as much is for sure. The thinking right now with ISIS, with Al-Qaeda, with Hamas, with Hezbollah, is clearly articulated in Psalm 83, at least what their agenda is. So having said that, whether or not this is happening and being fulfilled right now, I will not and cannot go that far. But with that much being said, and because of ISIS's involvement in this week's activity and what's happening as I speak, there are rockets um, being hurled from now Lebanon, uh, from, from Gaza. And um, let me just share this before I even say anything else. I shared it dur- during the first service. If I was the enemy of our soul and the enemy of Israel, if I was Lucifer, and he knows all these things, in Revelation 12 when he's cast out of heaven after his, his angel war with Michael, he's cast to the earth and it says, he knows he has a short time, just three and a half years, It says he goes to make war with the woman who is Israel. So his focal point, the devil himself, when he knows he has just a little bit of time, he focuses in on Israel. That's clearly Revelation chapter 12. If the only weapon that he's afraid of is our understanding of exactly what's happening from a biblical perspective, that becomes a threat to him. Because this is the only thing, we call it the sword of the spirit. Christians are supposed to know what's going on. So as I thought about it this week, and how big of a birth pain this actually is, if I'm him, and I want to create a diversion from what's really happening, well, then I have all the news concentrate on the border down in Mexico, and um, our Speaker of the House bringing a court case against the President of the United States, and let's look over here, look over here, look over here, but what's really happening is happening over there. That's what I would do if I was him. We're told not to be ignorant of his devices. This is a sparring match, this is a chess game, and at stake is the souls of men. The stakes are really that high. So for us to get it right and have not CNN or Fox News' perspective on what's happening in the Middle East, our job is to know what does God's word have to say about current events that are happening right now. All right, with that, um, in Psalm 83, if it's not being fulfilled, it is certainly at least, at the very least, the mindset of these Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, primarily ISIS right now. This is their thinking. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Do not keep silent, O God, and do not hold your peace. Uh, Do not be still, O God, for behold, your enemies make a tumult. Those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people. They've consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel will be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a Confederacy against you, the tents of Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab, the, the Hagarites, Gebel, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, that's Gaza, by the way, habitants of Tyre, that's Lebanon, by the way, Assyria, that's Iraq and Iran, by the way, also has joined them, and they have helped the lot, have been 
helped the children of Lot, Selah. Selah simply means to pause and think about what has just been said. Why do we have Mary come up from time to time and do prophecy updates? Why from time to time between books do we want to bring you up to to, um, events, current events that are taking place? Well, simply because the Lord told us to. So let's begin with a little bit of a foundation and have you turn to the book of Matthew chapter 24. And while you're turning, let's... um, Let me quote from Matthew 16. The Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, show us a sign. We want to see a sign. And he said to them, I believe sarcastically, he says, you guys, when when it's evening time, you say it's going to be fair weather tomorrow because you can see the sky's red. In the morning you say, well, it's going to be fall weather today for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, you hypocrites, you can discern the weather or the face of the sky but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Number one, that implies that there are signs of the times. And number two, they were the ones responsible for exposing the signs as biblical leaders, as teachers. They should have been the ones that would have been informing the people what's happening and more importantly, why it's happening. Now, if you're in Matthew 24, the premise of this is started with the question, Lord, what will be the sign of your second coming? And um, it's singular with the question, um, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And of course, the Lord talks about events that will happen. It was a big earthquake a couple days ago off the coast of Japan, 6.5. We've always had those. Always had famines, always had wars. But the sign um, that I believe he was referring to is farther on. We have both the second coming and the rapture in Matthew 24, in my opinion. But in verse 32, the sign, he says, learn the parable of the fig tree when its branches already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, know that it is near, what is? Well, the sign of his coming at the very door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. If there's one sign that um, proves beyond any shadow of any doubt that um, God tells the beginning from the end, It is the nation of Israel. Just think about this. In 70 AD, they were completely dispersed by the Roman army. They've been called the wandering Jews since then. Even during that time, they did not speak Hebrew. The religious leaders spoke Hebrew, but not the common language. Remember when they nailed Jesus to the cross? It was in Arabic and and in Hebrew and in Latin. They had it in three different languages. And uh, that was the reason for it. Well, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 11, 11, that he would regather the people of Israel a second time. The first time was when they went into captivity in Babylon, 70 years. Daniel knew he was a Bible student. He was reading Jeremiah, and he said, 70 years are determined, then we get to go home. That's exactly what happened. It's historical. Well, 
He also said that, that Jesus said, when you see here the nation regathered. Um, it was regathered. They started going back to Israel in the 1900s. But on May 14, 1948, David Ben-Gurion got up and declared, I declare this to be the nation of Israel. And in one day, just like the Bible said, in one day they became a nation. But more than that, they actually, there's a prophecy that said they would once again speak their native tongue. So Hebrew was completely reestablished. And if you go to Israel today, they speak English, but the second language of the people is Hebrew. Never in history has a national entity of people been dispersed into the world and then come back. They've always been assimilated into the culture. Nobody has ever come back and reestablished themselves in the land, much less speak a dialect that they haven't spoken since they were taken into captivity in Babylon. And yet both of these things are prophecies. What's significant about the parable of the fig tree, now this was 66 years ago. Jesus said, if you're alive during that time, you're going to see the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now that's quite a statement. But it's also backed up in Psalm 102, when David Dolan was here. He accurately in the Hebrew says, when the Lord builds up Zion, when that happens, he says the generation that'll be there will praise the Lord and it will be the generation, and then he used the correct Hebrew last. It will be the last generation when the Lord builds up Zion again. Now, here's my concern for the church. In verse 36, it says, but of that day and hour knows no one, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. This can only be a reference to the rapture because Daniel chapter 12 tells us the very day when Jesus Christ will come again. All you have to do is read the last three verses of Daniel chapter 12. It's 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation is set up. You shouldn't be surprised because in Daniel chapter 9, he tells you to the very day Jesus would come the first time and right to the day. But what we have in here is the rapture of the church. No man knows the day or the hour. The Lord's just going to decide, okay, today. Boy, can I get sidetracked thinking about that. Wouldn't that be a great thought today? Go home today. Okay, I'm done. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> That's what a great thought. But it says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now here's an interesting analogy. What was it like in the days of Noah? Here was a guy who talked about God's judgment coming for 120 years. You know how many converts he had? Zilch, nada. There was just eight of them, and they were his kids. They had to go to church. (laughs) They had to go. And there was only eight saved. But the reason they did not heed the warning is it appears that life went on. Everybody was eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until. And it paints a picture of normality. And here's, again, my concern. With everything that's happening right now, I know how busy your schedules are. People call and say, can I come in and talk? Of course you can. Just look at my schedule here. 
and I see how busy yours is, and I see how busy mine is, and you have family reunions and get-togethers and campouts, and everybody is busy. Somebody want to give me an amen or not? And even to the point of being too busy. And yet, with that, let me draw a contrast between busyness of life. Um, I got a couple weddings in August. I want to go to Israel in October. We'll see how that plans. So I have plans. You know, I'm making plans. So are you guys. You're making plans too. The reason this is a rapture and not the second coming is Jesus says right before he comes again, matter of fact, all I have to do is turn the page back one more. In the second coming, verse 22, Jesus says, unless those days were shortened after the great tribulation, not one, nobody would be saved. Unless the Son of Man directly intervenes, it's so bad that unless Jesus come back and puts an end to it, nobody's going to be alive. So in one sense, we have total chaos and unbelievable judgments during the tribulation. But during the rapture, it's going to catch everybody completely off guard. It's going to happen just like that, and you're going to be busy doing something else. So my concern and my first exhortation here this morning is making sure we're well aware of the birth pains and that we don't blow them off. Uh, what's happening right now. We should take it as a sign to make sure, if you look at chapter 25, what do we have? The parable of the ten virgins. Five are wise, five are foolish. Five had their oil in their lamp and five did not. All of a sudden this shout comes, the bridegroom is coming. That would be another way of saying, the Lord is coming. Well, how do you know that? Well, we're watching the signs and the signs look like it's pointing that the Lord is coming pretty soon. So, we have two different groups of people. Some who are sort of woken up from everyday life and going, hey, it's later than I thought because of what's happening in the Middle East right now. And others don't have a clue. I'm completely disheartened with the move this last month or so with the Presbyterian Church who has moved away from Israel and gone pro-Palestinian in their support. And this is just one of many, as we're, even our own government is, is slowly moving away from that. The rapture, so if life is normal, in verse 39 of 24, they did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so will it be when the coming of the Son of Man is. They won't be expecting it. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other one left. I am very... I just read the Bible for what it says. To me, that's a rapture verse, and I don't think it would be any more clear than that. Um, one husband is saved, a wife isn't, or vice versa. A family member is saved, and one is and one isn't. You're working on your job. The guy you're standing next to isn't saved. You are. And when that moment comes, well, one is taken, and one's left behind. First Corinthians 15, it's clear. Paul says at a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be changed. That quick. And then he tells us, because of that, make sure, verse 42, watch therefore. Watch. Well, watch for what? Well, the signs around Israel, primarily, that's the biggest sign. For you do not know the hour in which your Lord is coming. You're right, I don't. But having said that, I don't know the hour. His exhortation is, therefore, be ready. Just be ready, verse 44, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect him. So we can say no man knows 
the day or the hour. On the other hand, if you want to, you can turn it, or I'll just quote it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Of the times and the seasons, brethren, you don't have any need that I should write to you. For you know perfectly well that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night, just like that. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. And here's the analogy. As travail upon a woman with child, they will not escape. But you, brethren, in other words, here's the five wise virgins, those who are studying their Bible, those who are watching for the signs, those who realize what's happening in Israel as I speak has significance and is a birth pain and a sign. But you, brethren, you shouldn't be in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You're children of the light, you're children of the day. We are not of the night, nor are we of darkness. And so the same thing that he closes Matthew 24 with, he closes Matthew 25 with in verse 13. He says, Watch therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour which the Son of Man is coming. So we have these parables where the Lord gives us warnings just about being ready. Well, what is necessary um, in Zechariah 12? I should tell you that everything we read in Zechariah 12 deals with the second coming of Christ. And uh, the nation of Israel in particular, when the nations are gathered together against them. And that's not what's happening. That's yet future. That's not happening right now. What I'd like to do is just do a little background of what Israel has been through since it became a nation. I want to go back to uh, World War II. There was a soft spot in the heart of the UN for a very, very short period of time for the Jewish people. And they gave them a portion of land in the Middle East. And um, it eventually became the state of Israel on May 14th, 1948. And they were immediately attacked on all three sides by their enemies. And against all odds, they won that war. That was the first one. Then we have the Six-Day War in 1967. This war lasted for, they call it the Six-Day War for that reason. What came out of that was taking and annexing land that was greater than Israel already had. And part of that is what's controversial today. And uh, Israel, in the Six-Day War, one of the things they gave up was the Temple Mount. For those of you who came to the second service this morning, you get a little bit of extra treat because I got a little bit of extra time. And I'm gonna give you a little more about ISIS that I did in the first service. Plus, I'm gonna get replacement theology right rather than reform theology, so both. The next big war, as we see the enemy trying to take out Israel to this day. I was a Christian during this one. The first two I was not. I wasn't even born in 48. Um, wasn't interested in 67. But I was a Christian in 73, listening to Chuck, reading the late great planet Earth, and all of a sudden there's a war in Israel. It's called the Yom Kippur War. The enemies of Israel decided to attack on Israel's holiest day, catching them completely off guard. And as a result, 
of that war, Israel once again um, won. These were the major wars up till what's been simmering and coming to a boiling point to what's happening right now. And I'll go through these quickly. The first one, after the Yom Kippur War, after things settled down, they heated up again, we have the first intifada between 1987 and 1993, first large-scale Palestinian uprising against Israel in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The second intifada, 2000 to 2005, another uprising, a period of intensified violence which began in late September of about 2000. You might remember the one in 2006, like this war that happened right now. One of our soldiers was kidnapped during this war. And it's what led to us going into Lebanon at that particular time. And I could read about that, but um, it was a war that when I talked to my tour guides afterwards, they have big regrets because they could have went in and taken care of business very easily, and they were very passive in their approach to it. The next one is the Gaza War in 2008 and 2009. This three-week armed conflict between Israel and Hamas, I remember when they were pulling out the kibbutzes in the northern part of Gaza, and they were immediately being taken over by Hamas members. They eventually would our fear was Hamas would come in. Well, they came in all right. They actually became the elected parliament for that area. And um, uh, that was a big mistake because they've been stockpiling ever since then. We went in, had a war, and came out January 21, 2009. As the cauldron continued to boil in Israel, still not having it resolved in the Gaza Strip, the last one I remember... Our bags were packed. It was November 2012. We're getting ready to get on a plane to go to Israel. But what was happening right then is happening right now, and that we have tanks on the border of Gaza. Last night, special ops troops went into the northern part of Israel and took out rocket launchers. They went in, they did their business, and they came back out. So right now it's a tug of war, what's going on. The only trip we've ever canceled was 2012, because um, they were ready to put the tanks into Gaza. Now, that was just four years ago, from 2012. I remember that one clearly. And um, once again, that was the last time, once again, storm clouds are rising as Israel is once again under attack. This time it's different. I think it's different in a very big, major way. But before I go there, I have to establish our biblical perspective on what the God of Israel thinks about all what's going on right now. So if you would, just turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be there, and also Genesis chapter 15. And this is very politically incorrect. Everybody knows the war that's being fought is a religious war. It is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob against a fictional, not existing God called Allah. Yes, you heard me correctly. That's exactly what I believe. And Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. 
God is making a covenant with Abraham. And he says, And the Lord God said to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house to a land, to a land that I'm going to show you. And Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. Your name will be great and thou will be a blessing. And then he says, I will bless them that blesses you, thee, but I'm going to curse them that curse thee. Now just let that settle in. Has everybody got that? If you're a person... And if you bless Israel, then you're going to get blessed. But if you curse Israel, then a curse is placed upon you. I mean, is that what's being read? You don't have to be a theologian or get your lexicon out to figure out what it says. If you look this up in Hebrew, guess what? It'll say exactly the same thing, okay? So here's my question. Are the enemies of Israel, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood, Hezbollah, ISIS, are they blessing or cursing Israel? They're cursing. What does that mean? Then God's curse is upon them. That's extremely politically incorrect to say that, Dwight. I'm very aware of that. But it's exactly what the word of God says. Let me take it a step farther. Go to Genesis uh, Genesis chapter 15. If it's all about the land, they say, well, that's our land. Any land that was once held by Muslim according to their doctrine and teaching, always is Muslim. And it's just a matter of time until it's taken back. Well, that's their teaching, that's their doctrine. It happens to be a false teaching and a false doctrine. Here's what the Bible teaches. Genesis 15, it says, verse 17, came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces. It was a sacrifice made. And the torch of the Lord went between the two. It was a covenant. It was a land contract that was being signed. And in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed I have given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates. Let me show you just how much land that is. You can look up on the screens. And this is the land that was given to Abraham on this day. And let me just dwell a little bit on the covenant. God wanted to to sign it, and he says, I'm making this covenant. So what does he do? He makes a sacrifice. There's no greater authority. Any of you who's had a land transaction, you've had to get it notarized. You had to have somebody there, an official form, stamp it. Okay, it's been notarized, done deal. God couldn't go to anybody higher than himself. So he's the one who makes a sacrifice. He's the one that passes through. So as we think about whose land it is, well, this is a no-brainer. According to the word of God, this piece of real estate belongs to Israel and no one else. No matter what's being said, or no matter how, how it's being spun in the media, the land belongs to Israel. This is an everlasting covenant. One more is Jeremiah 33 And he says, concerning when I make a deal or I make a covenant, this is concerning now the reason that he wants Abraham in the first place. What's his goal? What's his plan? Well, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. How will I restore them? How can I once again have fellowship with my creation? Well, I'll just choose one guy. Abraham from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. I'm, I'm picking him. 
I'm going to take him, I'm going to separate him, I'm going to put him in a special piece of real estate. And it's going to be his descendants that I'm going to follow down. And through them, we'll eventually get to a guy named David. And I'm going to establish another covenant with David. That's Jeremiah 33, 19. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, if you can break the covenant of the day and my covenant with the night, that there should not be day and night in their season. In other words, if you can stop the sun from shining and the moon from coming up, if you can pull that off, they may also, you can break my covenant with David, my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon the throne as with the Levites, the priests, and the ministers. He called Abraham, gave him the land. Eventually, David comes through the lineage. Through him came what we call the lion of the tribe of Judah, the stem and the root of Jesse, the son of David, Jesus the Messiah. It's all part of God's plan, and it all revolves around Israel. Satan was defeated on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. Somebody give me a hearty amen on that one. That's the good news. But it's all part of the bigger picture that we see here. Now for everything to come full circle, this is what he's done. In the book of Daniel, he said, I'm going to give Israel 490 years. After 483, the Messiah is actually going to come. And again, the Bible tells us to the very day that he came, Daniel chapter 9. And 483 of the 490 years that God promised him was fulfilled. But when Jesus came and his own didn't receive him, the clock stopped. And God did something very wonderful. He set Israel right here, clock stopped, and he opened up salvation to Gentiles. And then you got a guy like Cornelius, a Gentile, and Peter's supposed to go witness to him. <laughs> Lord, he's a Gentile, he can't be saved. Do it anyway. And it was unthinkable that a Gentile could be saved, but the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius, fell on his household, and all of a sudden, in this gap of time where the clock has stopped. Here, we are being grafted into God's plan, and we are now part of God's overall plan for not just Israel, but you and I as Gentiles. He will be a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah said. And so that is happening and has been happening since Pentecost. It will have an ending, according to the book of Romans, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. In other words, there's a set number. Then the rapture. Then what? Then I'm going to deal with Israel once again. Tick, tick, tick. Seven more years that has not yet been fulfilled from Daniel 9. As we wind down to the end, the battle intensifies. So who are Israel's enemies right now? I mentioned them. Hamas, Hezbollah, of course, uh, Islam, right at the top, um, Jihad, um, the Elias' um, Mosque Barade, Al-Qaeda, the Muslim Brotherhood in Iran. But the latest one, the ones who were excommunicated from Al-Qaeda because they were so brutal in their lack of any conscience of taking human life, they pulled the graphic videos that when this first happened, I saw a couple of them and I went back to try to find them. They're so graphic. And basically you're given an ultimatum with this group. And that is, um, 
you join them or you die. But let me give you a little background and why they've been so successful in what they did in Iraq in the last month. First of all, let me tell you who they are. ISIS is simply an acronym for the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. They come out of the Al-Qaeda branch. In world history, it's interesting, pick the name ISIS. Uh ISIS, that's an Egyptian god. Was an Egyptian goddess. The word itself means seat or throne, which is interesting since the stated goal of ISIS, uh, the terrorist group, is to create an Islamic caliphate or seat of Islamic Sharia power throughout the Middle East, a Sunni terrorist state with the stated goal of eventually taking Jerusalem. Now, when they started, there wasn't that many of them. This is where a prophecy is going to come in, and I missed this during the first service, so please put the black flag up now, and then I'll talk about the prophecy. In the writings of Muhammad, there is a prophecy of the black flag. And according to the prophecies of the prophet Muhammad, he says a nonstop army will arise from the land of, and here it's called K-H-O-R-A-S-A-N, Khorasan. And I looked it up. Basically, it's a historic region in Iran. So that's where the prophecy comes from. And um, the army will conquer several lands until they reach Jerusalem, and then it pledges its allegiance. Once they've conquered what they're supposed to conquer, then they will turn over what they have won to the 12th Amman called the Mahdi. I'm just curious how many of you have heard of the 12th Amman. Well, this prophecy goes on to say, when you see the black flags, then this is your sign to join with them because now the time has come. They're here. Uh, Join up with them. By the way, here is the leader of uh, the group. His name is... um, Abu Akbar Ali Baghdad. And here's a picture of him. This is the first time he's shown his face. He is the equivalent to Osama bin Laden, I would say, only much more dangerous and much more radical. Um, He has transformed a few small cells into the most brutal and lethal group on earth. Mercy is is not in this man's vocabulary. Al-Qaeda is tame compared to this man and his tactics. What are his goals? Once ISIS establishes its permanent presence, let me just, I'm taking stuff for granted here. How many of you are are following the news enough that have heard about ISIS and uh, they've taken the largest oil refineries in Iraq, they've taken all the gold, half a trillion dollars that they're bankrolling everywhere they go, they just clean house. And they become extremely powerful, but they were really a minority until these prophecies came out about when you see the black flag, you're to join them. And that's the reason they've been able to move so quickly and to be able to conquer so much. What's next? As the bombs are dropping right now as I speak from the Gaza Strip in Israel, what's next? Well... ISIS established its permanent presence in Iraq, as Hezbollah has done in Lebanon and Hamas in Gaza. It will strengthen its grip on Syria. 
while looking down on Israel from the Golan Heights. Now, you'd have to be in Israel to know where the Golan Heights is. It's the border between Syria in the north and Israel. And it's a high mountain. You know, go there, and on a clear day, you can see Damascus from, from this spot. And, um, but just think about this. If this is where their goal is to get to, it is likely to turn its attention to a military-weak Lebanon. They've already fired rockets from Lebanon into Israel this week seeking to remove the Shiite Hezbollah from power, taking over its armory, 100,000 rockets, and taking control of that country. Two days ago, they seized uranium from a lab outside of Iraq. Just let that settle in. They seized uranium. There's a man named Daryl Kimball, um, Arms Control Association, he says, this, there is theoretically the potential here for a dirty bomb. Let me just talk about that for a second. A dirty bomb really isn't going to do a lot of damage. But the terror that it would produce by the fact that there's radioactivity in Israel, um, let me put it in terms that we would more understand. Let's say um, Cuba decided uh, they just want to just lob a little bomb over uh, that 80-mile stretch into southern Florida, and it took out a little portion of, of Miami. How long do you think we would sit around and negotiate or talk about it? About two seconds. And whoever launched that, they would be history. They would be gone. You know what Israel's doing right now? With their, there's been over 1,200 pinpoint attacks into, into the Gaza Strip. And what they do as they put human shields and hide their weapons in mosques and places like that. And as much as we don't want civilians hurt, it's them that are putting the human shields there. And this is what the news, I'll tell you something now the news isn't reporting. We're sending hundreds of thousands of tons of food into Gaza right now. What enemy, what, when you're at war, with an enemy, who does that? And in the middle of a war, nobody does that. You lay siege and you starve them out. We're also sending in tons of gasoline. When the three terrorists, when the two terrorists killed what started all this, the teenage Jewish boys, about a month ago, they were celebrating in the streets in the West Bank and in Hebron. We know who did it. They were Hezbollah. And in retaliation, um, a Jewish man killed an Israeli. And when we found out about it, when I say we, I mean Israel, Israel is going after the person who did this, and he will be held accountable for the murder that he committed. What's the difference between the Palestinians and the Israelis? Well, we're feeding them while we're trying to simply take out the bad guys, and uh, they're rejoicing in the streets over what happened with the killing of the three. But what are we doing? No, we're going to find the guy that killed this Palestinian boy. We're going to bring him to justice. We have two different mindsets here and two different groups of, of people. One is um, fighting for its survival and only defending itself, and we would certainly do the same. But because we're talking about the Golan here and we're talking about Syria, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 17. A prophecy that's never been fulfilled. And hypothetically, let's just say they got some uranium. And let's just say they're able to attach it and just lob it over the border. doesn't hit anybody, but now you've got radioactivity. How much do you think Israel is going to take? 
I've been going to Israel since 1979. And we always pick up hitchhikers and uniform whenever we're, we're over there. They have a saying in the military called what they call the Solomon Complex. I'll explain it real quickly. After World War II, and six million of their people were killed, they said, never again. We'll never let that happen again. So they have what they call now a military strategy called the Solomon Complex. I'm sorry. Did it almost, and nobody's calling me on it. Naughty, naughty, naughty people. You're letting me get away with that. The Samson Complex. Everybody knows who Samson is? Everybody know how he died? He committed suicide, right? He, he took himself out, but he took everybody else out with him, okay? So they have that mentality right now. You lob dirty material into Israel, bye-bye. Isaiah 17, verse 1, has never been fulfilled. Damascus is the oldest inhabited city in the world. There's none older. There's none that have been continuously inhabited. And yet, Isaiah 17 says, the burden of Damascus, behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. This has never happened before. Everybody knows, and um, by the way, All of a sudden, we found out that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. What a big surprise. Everybody catch what I just said? I mean, this is what sh- such a big political issue. They were playing it all the time. Oh, there's no weapons. No, they moved them to Syria. And uh, we found that, and, and this chemical stuff they took out of Iraq. What? Oh, now we found it. We didn't. Who did? ISIS did. So that's a whole another subject right there, but... Where does it um, leave us right now? And now my concern is that, number one, we're aware um, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. But how is the best way to... Again, the enemy has his diversionary tactics. When we have every news program right now focused on the borders down in Texas, don't we? And the real action is taking place where? In the Middle East. So we're, we're, and the church is unfortunately painfully unaware of Bible prophecy and eschatology. So as we begin to wind things up here this morning, let me turn my attention now to us as the church and um, America, I will pray for my president because the Bible tells me to. Amen? I don't want anybody to go to hell, so I will pray for him on that. But having said that, he's more involved with fundraisers right now than he has been concerned. Oh, he did call Benjamin Netanyahu and said he'd help broker a peace agreement. And I'm sure Bibi said, no, thank you. And that's exactly what he said. And uh, neither Hamas nor Israel wants a peace treaty right now. And um, so that's not going to be happening. But let me explain why we have become so indifferent with our only ally in the Middle East, but much more as Christians, that we have this understanding that we are grafted in to the vine that's called Israel. Okay, replacement 
theology, and I got it right this time. Replacement theology is what I want to just explain in four simple points. Where has a church gotten off track? Well, the eighth, uh, replacement theology in a nutshell is simply this. Um, it's the greatest harm that I can imagine today for the nation of Israel. Number one, it ignores the Jewish roots of Christianity. Don't you know that all the disciples were Jews? Every single one of them. Until Cornelius comes around, he gets saved. And, uh, but Christianity is Jewish. I mean, when I got saved, I had a love for the Jewish people. Why did I have a love for the Jewish people? My Savior was Jewish. Easy enough. He saved me. I love him. These are your family. I love them too. I mean, it was that simple in my thinking. So I had the special affection. Plus, I couldn't help but notice that there's such a small minority, and I really love music, and I couldn't help but notice that some of the greatest composers and musicians in the world, from Peter, Paul, and Mary to Simon and Garfunkel to Kirk and Spock, they're all Jews. Much not, I'm leaving out Dylan here and Peter, Paul, and Mary. They're all Jews. And when you think about it, just on that level, that God has blessed this group of people. So is Einstein, by the way. And uh, you guys, you know, the list could go on and on and on. The majority of people, God has blessed them with extra brain cells that I don't have. <laughs> and they're blessed. They're chosen people that God has blessed. And um, we are grafted into them. Has God temporarily set them aside? Why? Well, it says blindness has happened in part to Israel. Only in part. He hasn't rejected them. The thorough study on, on God's plan for Israel is Romans 9, 10, and 11. Write it down. Read it. Starts out Paul saying, has God forsaken his people? Certainly not. Every time a Jehovah Witness knocks on my door, he has no idea what he's getting in for. I said, oh, I, I can't invite you in, but I, let me come out and stand on the porch for a while. So I said, okay, he's the teacher, here's the student. I'm not going to worry about this one. I'm this one right here. And so, um, oh, I can't go there. You'll be here till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> but eventually I get around to them being the 144,000. And I said, really? So you're, you're, the, you're the ones that that in Revelation chapter 7. Can we read that? And do you believe the Bible? Yeah, I believe the Bible. Okay, believe literally, you know. And I said, why do you think it so, gets so specific? 12,000 from the tribe of, from um, Naphtali and uh, Asher and, and Benjamin and Joseph. And I just go through the list and I said, I don't read one Jehovah Witness name on there. You know? It looks all Jewish to me. And uh, he said, no, 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 God, they rejected Jesus, you see, so we, we inherited. I said, really, would you open to Romans 9 and just read verse 1 out loud for me? They have a hard time just finding Romans, by the way, <laughs> I found out. Well, when they get there, they'll read it first, and then they don't want to read it back. And I said, now, please read that out loud. Has God forsaken Israel? Certainly not. I said, well, read that. And they said, has God forsaken Israel? Certainly. Would you read it again, please, a little bit louder this time? And by the time we get around to where they know where I'm going, they have to leave. And then I stand in their way. I put the foot in the door. We're not quite done yet. I just really would like to talk to you some more. 
Because you see, this person right here, you're following this person right here. He's the teacher. You're just a, you're just a student who's very much deceived right now, but there's still hope for you. Maybe not for this one, but I think the Lord can still save you. You need to run from this cult that's teaching uh, against the apple of God's eye. And that's what replacement theology is. It's replacing the apple of God's eye with the church, and that's not what the Bible teaches. So it ignores the Jewish roots of Christianity. Number two, it believes the Jewish people were rejected by God because they rejected Jesus. That's what they believed. They, they rejected Jesus, so God rejected them. That's replacement theology. Number three, it teaches the church is the new Israel. And they take this from one verse. You can write it down, um, Galatians 6.16, uh, called speaking to the church, the God of Israel, and take it out of context and there's many other scriptures that correct it. And you can't just pull one scripture out of context and build a doctrine on it. But that's what they've done. Number four, it sees no validity to the modern state of Israel and God's prophetic calendar. They're just there. And so why support them? Why defend them? And that's why you have this last month the Presbyterian Church waning its support against Israel and supporting the Palestinian movement along with Lynn Heibel, Bill Heibel's wife from Willow Creek. She's also a sympathizer with the uh, Palestinians. Now, lest I, I be misunderstood, I think the Lord loves the Palestinians just as much as he loves uh, you and me. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? I, my problem is not with them. It's the problem with, let's put this guy's picture up on the screen. He's a leader of ISIS. He's an incarnate of the devil himself, as far as I'm concerned. And these are the ones where David says, Lord, are not your enemies my enemies? And do not I hate those who hate you? Well, this guy hates Israel. So I don't particularly care much for him either. And so that's his picture right now. It's the first time he's showing, showing his face publicly. So the roots that have infected our church today is the church is unaware of what's happening. It's asleep in the light when it comes to current events that are happening as I'm speaking right now. But in closing, in Luke 21, Jesus says, when these things begin to come to pass, then lift up your head because your redemption is drawing nigh. In other words, it's getting close. These are signposts. And it's like the ten virgins. Behold, the Lord is coming. And some respond. And some are asleep in the light. And then when the rapture happens and they're left behind, they go, Lord, why did you leave me behind? Just like the five unwise virgins. And he says, I don't know you. Who are you? Well, I was a Christian. No, you never were born again. You never had a personal relationship with me. And he'll tell them, I never knew you. And that is exactly what's also true in our our country. Most, let's go back and we'll finish up with... uh, Verse 10 of Zechariah, um, add one more verse. What an incredible day this is going to be when this happens. Because of, after the rapture of the church, <clears throat> the clock begins to tick once again as God keeps his promise to Israel. Moses shows up with Elijah. Many Jews will get saved. 
Many of them won't. Many of them will just be indifferent. But then you get to the end, and the Lord himself finally returns. That's what verse 10 is talking about. You see, the war has taken place in verses 1 through 9. But after the war is over, Acts 1 says, You men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus is going to return to exactly the same place that he left from. Just as you see him go up, he's going to come back. Verse 10 is when he comes back. And it says, I will pour out in the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Notice this. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Can you imagine? All your life you've been anti-Jesus, anti-Christian, because of what they did to my grandparents in World War II. And I understand that. And by the way, they know the difference between Christians who love the people of Israel and those that are just completely indifferent. Anti-Semitism is alive and well. Uh, we have, I don't have friends. Uh, Bruce and Katie Petros have friends. Um, a guy named Michelle who comes over, likes Bruce's guitars. He says the anti-Semitism in Paris right now is off the charts. People are moving out. They're leaving because of the anti-Semitism that's there. So they have a right to be guarded against Christianity. But can you imagine when the Lord shows up and it says they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. I can't put this into words, gang. All I can do is describe it for you here where it says nobody wanted to be comforted by anybody else. Families depart. Husbands separate from their wives. They don't want to be comforted. The reality of what they've just experienced, that it was Jesus all the time, and that is setting in on them, it's more than what they can bear. Verse 14, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Nobody wants to be comforted. If you turn to chapter 13, verse 6, someone's going to ask Jesus this question. Where did you get those wounds in your hands? Who else and what else could this be referring to? Then he will answer, well, these are the wounds that I was wounded with in the house of my friends. My family did this. And um, wow, what a statement and what an overwhelming experience at that time when that all comes crashing down. Wow, pretty heavy study. Do I go home and have lunch on a beautiful Sunday afternoon in July? <laughs> you leave us there? No. Because there's a beautiful light at the end of this tunnel. For Israel, for the remnant, for the church. Yeah, the world is going to go through some very difficult times. But it's not the end. So, while you're turning to Titus 2, in closing, I'm going to quote Psalm one. 30 verse 7. Psalm 130 verse 7 says, Let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there's mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. He's got a plan for his people Israel, and he's going to establish them. They have their unique role in the kingdom, different from the church. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And once again, 
Um, as it says, Israel will be the head and not the tail. They will be the ones honored, not the ones despised. As for us, in Titus 2, if you're there, verses 13, 14, and 15, and the reason for our Bible study this morning, we are to be those five wise virgins. You're not going to get it on CNN. You're not going to get it on Fox. Even... um, Huckleberry, help me out here. Huckabee, Mike Huckabee, he's a brother. Uh, He, when we were leaving last year, he was coming. Our guide was going to take his next group. So he's a brother. Uh, You might get a little bit from him, but not, not too much anywhere else. But we are told to look for the blessed hope. We're not to be sleeping. Uh, We are to wake up when the sirens go off. Let me put it that way. When the sirens go off and you get your red, I didn't get one. I told Judy she could have it because it's always ringing (laughs) because of what's happening right now. It went off four times between the first and the second service in Israel between Gaza. In other words, the bridegroom coming or the signs are there, then, like it says in Thessalonians, we're not children of the night. We are to know the times and the seasons. And it's really my responsibility to you and your responsibility to your friends to be able to articulate what's going on over there. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? He says, this is is what's being reported from the news. But let me just tell you what God's word has to say about it. And it's never been wrong. And it's not going to be wrong now. Storm clouds are rising. And we are to be looking for the blessed hope. And this is how it all washes out in the end the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And let me close with just giving you the gospel. Who gave himself for us. Jesus gave himself for you. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never believed any of this stuff or saw the significance of it or it just never made sense. God's got a plan. It goes way back to the garden. Picked a guy named Abraham. So I'm going to pick him, I'm going to use his family, I'm going to bring a Messiah out of this And someday he's going to die for the sins of the world. It's the only way. And um, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all our iniquity. Jesus loves you so much he died just for you. And if anybody takes that and blows it off and says, it's not for me, you're making the biggest mistake you could possibly ever make in your life. To reject um, the free gift that he wants to give you. And purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And then this word is for me to give to you. He says, these things speak, exhort, and rebuke with all authority if necessary. Well, I think we should have a divided land in Israel. That's wrong. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. That land belongs to Israel. It's clear. The Bible says so, and you can... You can um, have your opinion with it, but I'm standing strong and I'm not going to let that be. It makes good sense. It sounds right. The problem is it's not biblical. It's not what the Bible teaches about that piece of real estate. That belongs to Israel. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Stand upon the book. Don't be afraid to um, defend the apple of God's eye right now and let no man despise thee. And people will, let's face it. You know, you'll be one of those narrow-minded, fundamental, 
Bible thumping, <laughs> fill in the blank. Well, Jesus said, if they did it to me, they're going to do it to you. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we're in between books, Lord, between book of Job and Psalm, and we see the sirens going off, and we know that it's a birth pain. Lord, we pray for balance, and um, we thank you that there's light at the end of the tunnel, that you have a purpose and a plan for your people, and uh, you're going to establish your kingdom. We've been praying for a long time, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And Lord, we thank you that uh, your word has never failed, and you're going to establish your kingdom. You definitely have plans of your own to establish your 1,000-year millennial reign. So we pray for that this morning. In closing, we pray not only for your people Israel, but the innocent Palestinians who you love and died for also. Lord, we pray for them too. In Jesus' name, amen.